0: Your eyes and your vision are under attack, damaging blue light from the sun. Your phone, your computer, your tablet, even light bulbs and car headlights is constantly bombarding you. The good news is our eyes actually already have a line of defense to counter the effects of blue light. This defense is made up of three pigments called carotenoids. MacuHealth with Micromycel, the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and micromicelle technology.
1: The All Eyes Visual VRP is a portable vision testing platform that includes visual fields, acuity, color vision testing, pupillometry, and extraocular motility. The visual leverages virtual reality, artificial intelligence, and augmented technologies to enable eye care providers to test for and monitor common eye diseases. Visit alleyes.com for more information
2: there are people who are afraid
1: of the press have you talked to your patients about multifocal contact lenses i've heard the bifocal but not not multifocal do you need help with your multifocal strategy learn more at the conclusion of this episode welcome back to part two of my interview with coach walter beattie walter is the author of two books fun over fear and the process in this episode coach beattie shares some unique drills For both hitters and pitchers if you're new here and you like our interviews press like subscribe share and hit the bell also please leave comments be sure to watch our full-length documentary open your eyes on amazon prime apple tv itunes google play and youtube movies and shows and tune into our brand new radio show saturday mornings at 9 a.m central time on am 1280 the patriot it's it's interesting in the book you talk about throwing drills and throwing a tennis can uh, over to, to so it doesn't go like a helicopter. it goes like this can right you Explain some of those drills that that you talk about in your book the throwing. Well, what the
2: number one thing is parents we're enamored as parents of pitchers when we see our sons or daughters striking out hitters. And you know when you throw a curveball, you can see the ball in some cases, most cases go down or down in away. So, So that's a curveball. Uh, and there's a lot of recent studies that have said throwing a curveball is takes less stress than a fastball does as far as torque with your elbow. But if I take a tennis ball can, and you know, most people don't realize it's about eight inches, 10 inches in height. And it's about the diameter of a baseball. Um, if I see that tennis ball can going side to side like a helicopter blade then that would say or signal that the thumb is coming around meaning there's no pronation and so we're stressing the elbow whereas if I see the tennis ball can go end over end the thumb kind of stays inside my my throwing shoulder and it kind of it's gonna pronate and and you're not stressing your elbow but that's a good way Of getting boys to understand, okay, I'm throwing the tennis ball can, I'm getting it, it's a visual that I can see in a non stressful way that signifies I'm ready to start throwing a curveball. And the other thing is when you're playing catch, you wanna play catch with a purpose. And so this gets lost in translation. You know, a lot of parents, they don't wanna, they fear that their son or daughter isn't gonna get good enough by playing a catch with them. Just playing catch. But playing catch with a purpose is going to help your child become better. And so when I say to a parent, rather than, you know, if you look at a child, obviously there's a significant height difference for the vast majority. So they know not only do I have to throw it to my parent, but I have to throw it up to my parent. So how is that going to occur? So they, they, they do a helicopter spin or like a discus throw, because that's how they generate power. Well, that's not how you want to teach your son or daughter to throw. What you want to do is teach them, you know, how to engage the elbow or what I call the three levers, you know, the elbow, the wrist and the fingers all play a vital role with regard to throwing an object of any kind, not just a baseball. And so if you teach them simply to take a ball and bring it back to their shoulder and almost like the ball can touch their shoulder and then flip it forward with just the use of their forearm, That's the proper way at the very young ages. And I always use an incredible and an incredible is a nerf like baseball and it eliminates fear because they know they can't get hurt. Um, And so they'll throw that it's lighter. They'll throw it. uh, And to me, that's the best way to start to learn. And as they get older, you move back a little bit, but give them a target to throw that to them and make it a game, make it a competitive game. I, I used to do it with both my boys where, If you hit the target, that was five points. If you got, you know, within my shoulders, that was two points. And if you, you know, got outside that, you didn't get any points. And so it taught them, we were playing catch, but in a competitive capacity. And so it taught them to kind of be throwing, but also having a target or an intent, a purpose with every throw, Um, but just playing catch, simple catch. If you and I went back to a playground and we had a time, a future m- machine that we could go into and then we, in a time machine and we went back to 1975 playgrounds were filled with just people playing catch, you know, whether it was a bunch of kids or a bunch of parents or, or coaches, et cetera. We don't do that anymore. We don't go out and just play catch. In fact, movies have been made, you know, uh, you know, with regard to, Hey dad, you want to go play catch? Um, we fear as parents that we're not knowledgeable enough to make our sons or daughters better. When in reality, they'll learn from us in a much more relaxed and uh, even a quicker capacity. If if we're taking the time to spend with them uh, to help them, you know, with, with regard to being a, an athlete.
1: In the book, you mentioned your wrist over your elbow as opposed to out like this, th- that helps prevent arm injuries. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Sure, if I said to you, uh, Kerry, how many NFL quarterbacks or college quarterbacks can you tell me have had Tommy John surgery?
1: Yeah, probably zero, right?
2: Okay, but if I said to you, can you tell me a pitcher or a baseball player that is Tommy John, and you can rattle off you know, a litany of you know, very formidable major leaguers, college players, et cetera. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that when we learn to throw, Football players inevitably learn that everything leads with the elbow and then the, the wrist and the fingers get involved. And if I look at the wrist during most football throws, the wrist is always, tends to be over the elbow. It's over the elbow. When I throw a baseball, if I take Chris Sale as an example, and the, el- and the wrist is casting away from our body and around our target, we're stressing the elbow. And so the elbow is very similar to a rope on an anchor of a boat. And every time I throw the rope over, I don't see any discernible stress on the rope. I I know the anchor is attached to it, but what's happening is one strand of fiber is is kind of coming apart one fiber at a time, very slowly over a course of time. And so what children fail to understand is, oh, they get sore. Oh, that's normal. But what they're doing is they're basically a strand of their fiber of their tendon and their ligament is kind of stressing and little, uh, you know, stress uh, tears uh, begin to occur. And over time, ultimately it snaps. Now, parents were led to believe that if I had the Tommy John surgery, I'm going to come back stronger. So they kind of were advocates of let's go get my 14 year old or 15 year old a Tommy John surgery, as crazy as that sounds. I can assure you as the parent of someone that's gone through Tommy John, it's not a procedure that you want your son uh, or potentially your daughter to ever have if you can avoid it. And so that's why we've become so sport specific as a society where we're not multiple sport orientated. We're not soccer, softball, uh, basketball, hockey, et cetera. We're all baseball all year. And the number of competitive throws that these young students make is in the tens of thousands, the hundreds of thousands, and nobody's bringing to their attention, oh, by the way, your son's wrist is really getting away from his body. That's going to really begin to stress his elbow. Um, And so here's a good idea of, of how to teach your child their natural throwing mechanic. And that is, if I roll a young boy or girl a ground ball, instinctively, they field it with their glove and they bring the ball up to their chest area, almost immediately. So now if I say that to a pitcher, a pitcher doesn't do that. Their hands are down below their waist, their hands are above their shoulders. And so their natural throwing mechanic or slot has been altered because they've been so focused on pitching. Um, And they've become so robotic and unathletic because of the lesson format. Uh, We've create. we're trying to create robots instead of just creating young athletes that are enthusiastic about participating in a sport with their friends. And, and that's what's causing arm injuries.
1: You talk about sequencing, tunneling, uh, with pitching, dis- uh, disrupting the load. If you could tell us about those concepts.
2: So sequencing and tunneling, you, you know, they're usually used later on in an athlete's career. Uh, we focus so much on trying to deceive uh, a, a hitter as a pitcher uh, with a curveball, trying to fool a hitter. And in reality, as the game gets older, the hitters aren't fooled, their timing is is messed up. And so if you can throw a fastball, what I call glove side for a right-handed pitcher, which would be to the catcher's right knee, um, you know, and you hit that spot and then you tunnel, or sequence in a change up into the same location the hitter is going to think okay here comes another fastball but yet the separation so baseball is all about disruption of timing as a hitter as a pitcher as a fielder um, and so when we're tunneling we're trying to throw pitches all of our pitches into the same area we're not trying to throw them up and away and in and out we're trying to A hitter to think like we're in this one specific area, but we're going to throw multiple pitches into that area. So you can't always think, okay, if it's low and away, it's a fastball, if it's in, it's a changeup, or if it's up, it's a curveball. You want to be able to get a hitter to think every pitch is coming out of the same tunnel, and so that I can't really know until it's almost 10 15 feet away from me what it is. And it's tough to pick up spin as a hitter as well. And then sequencing is trying to. Not be scripted. We don't want to be scripted. We don't want to be every O two one two pitch I throw a curveball or every O two one two pitch I throw a changeup. And oh, by the way, we don't have to waste a pitch. You know that it used to be O two one two. We to don't throw a strike. Okay, well, we want to throw a strike, but we want to make the hitter make a decision. So if we think the hitter's looking inside, we want to try to throw a strike on the outer half or vice versa. So sequencing and tunneling is something that comes. Between the ages of, say, 14 and 17, when we're getting into the bigger mound, the, the bigger field, and we want to learn how to be effective, but most importantly, efficient with our pitches. You know, and this is why a lot of, you know, older pitchers, they, they get 100 pitches going into the fourth or fifth inning. They're inefficient. Whereas a guy like a Greg Maddox was tremendously efficient because he wasn't so worried about how hard he was throwing. He was more worried about, I'm going to throw this into a specific location and disrupt the hitter's timing. So once you learn that as a young pitcher, it's going to help you be in a game longer. And it's going to help keep your team in games for a longer period of time.
1: And you mentioned like like a three pitch. You want to get every batter out within three pitches.
2: Correct. And so... You know, I learned this at a very young age um, and taught it as a as a high school and college coach that a hitter wants to hit. They're generally very impatient. You know, a hitter wants to get in there. They want to swing. You know, I got a $400 bat. I want to have some, you know, some applause. I want to get people saying, oh man, I was two for three today. Nobody cares that you were 0 for 1 with three walks. They want to hear that you were three for four with a couple of singles and a triple. So we want to take that impatience and we want to use that to our advantage and so what we want to try to do is we want to look at each hitter as a three pitch sequence meaning my first pitch i want to make sure is a strike it's a mental discipline to get a a, a, an 0 and one count in other words don't look at it without a purpose okay i have a new count i want to be efficient but i want to be effective with these next three pitches so that a guy is either going to Swing and miss or take strike three, or he's going to pop up, ground out, or get a hit. So he's either going to be in the, in the dugout or on a base within three pitches. And as a parent of a young pitcher, if you can teach your son or daughter to take that mindset, don't fear contact. Contact is your friend, meaning a pop-up, a ground ball out, a fly ball out, a line drive out there's seven people or eight with the pitcher in front of the hitter that all have gloves that are meant to catch or feel the ball. So the odds of being successful by initiating contact are in a pitcher's favor. Whereas if I walk a hitter, okay, there's nothing anybody could have done to prevent that. I, I That's on me. I walk them. So don't think about getting two and two and you know three and two. Think about OK, I have three pitches. I want to use these pitches as effectively as I can to be as efficient as I'm capable of being so that I can finish games that I start uh, once I'm built up uh, enough physically.
1: How about when they say to the kid, well, you don't throw hard enough, even though you're getting you're getting people out, but you're not throwing hard enough. Uh, you're not striking anybody out.
2: Uh, Well, that's the world we live in of analytics that are trying to talk about swing and misses, and we're all enamored by velocity. Um, You know, that's been around for centuries. But if we start thinking about velocity, when is it best to have velocity? and, And what is serviceable velocity? Meaning if I throw hard, but every ball goes to the backstop and the hitters aren't prepared to swing, it's not doing me any good. Whereas if I'm throwing slower and I'm throwing in the strike zone and I'm frustrating hitters, that's my job. We've gotten away from that a lot because everything on social media is, you know, if we look on a college website, we look on a tournament or showcase website, these are the hardest throwers from our event this weekend. This guy topped out at 96. Okay. Well, did the 96 mile an hour pitch was that, off the bull's head or was it you know in the catcher's mitt right down the middle so we don't talk enough about that and unfortunately the narrative of getting out is lost amongst the sea of you know i throw this hard my spin rate is this my vertical and horizontal movement is this i think metrics and analytics are slowly losing their sh- you know their glimmer and their shine and a lot of people are coming back to who's getting the outs, who's really effective, who's keeping us in games. And at the end of the day, the game is about the number of outs you collect, not about the number of pitches that you throw 100. Last night I watched Araldus Chapman. He's been in the big leagues 12 years and on record as the hardest pitch at 106. And he was throwing 98-101, but he threw 10 balls in a row. That didn't help his team in any way, shape, or form. So uh, I really encourage parents not get so – enamored with velocity and focus on the ability to build up through a progression-based program. And if your son's getting outs, he's going to have a spot on a team. You might not get the glory that the harder throw throw has, but he's going to be on a team.
1: How about as a kid is growing and he has smaller hands. So therefore he has more fingers on the ball that slows the ball down uh, rather than, than like maybe two fingers. So you can throw the ball faster, but he has a small hand and it and, and slows the ball down
2: I, I tell parents all the time that kind of levels itself out through physical maturation but really when they're younger if they need all four fingers and the thumb on the ball and they can throw strikes with it don't worry about it ultimately the goal should be the middle finger should split the ball in half with the thumb underneath it on every pitch that you throw uh you know the diameter is approximately three and a half inches so if you can cut the ball in half at one you know right down the middle of the seam with the middle finger uh you know underneath the the thumb uh I had a ball here I don't know where I did with it but you know generally that's the best way of controlling the baseball and it's the healthiest way to hold the baseball but when they're little if they get three or four fingers on it it's not a big deal as long as they can accurately throw it uh over time they'll go to figure it out how to kind of split it in half and kind of have that two two finger grip on the ball
1: in in your book and and I've heard this a lot is the ground ground force to be in the ground you, you know and somebody who played baseball and, and I still play softball but played baseball for many years we never thought about the ground but then I started thinking about it well if I was on ice and, and, I, and an ice ring I wouldn't be able to throw very hard like I'm on the ground so if you could kind of explain that concept.
2: Sure. I think, you know, we are enamored with gadgets and gadgets and, you know, parents will pick up stuff and they'll give me all the reasons why they got it. And I'll say to them, well, you do realize that the ground is really where everything happens without the ground. So, for instance, if I'm a hitter and my back foot is off the ground and I just hit off my front foot, I'm really not using any energy it's just all my upper body is now involved and engaged in that swing and so when I teach pitchers Frankenstein used to wobble he never really used the ground he didn't gain any ground he just gravity lift the foot up you put a foot down and a lot of that is what happens in youth baseball they pick a foot up and they put a foot down well if I start to think about pitching as if I'm a right-handed pitcher specifically the ball of my right foot is gonna grab the ground and and I'm gonna use the ground to deliver my energy as opposed to provide energy. And there's a big difference between falling and driving. And so falling is if I lift my front foot up and I put it out in front of me, I'm just gonna, my body's gonna wanna fall uh, forward. Whereas if I lift my lead leg up and I drive with my back leg, similar to a sprinter using a sprinter block, I'm directing the energy. I am the one in charge of the energy. And so therefore it makes me more explosive. It makes me more energetic, but more importantly, it makes more of an impact with regard to velocity on a throw or as a barrel meets a baseball. And if we look at some of the all-time great hitters and, you know, I go back, Roberto Clemente and Hank Aaron and Willie and you know, no batting gloves and no elbow guards and, you know, no helmets and some of these guys. And, you know, they're driving baseballs. And, you know, back then the polo grounds and Ebbets Field, it was 480 feet and they were hitting home runs 450 feet. You look at their lower half and you look at how involved and engaged it was with the ground. And so when you work with athletes and you teach them how to use the ground for power and like lift off it's a, it's a rocket booster. And if you teach them how to use it properly, it changes the, the, the environment for them almost instantly, because now they're starting to drive baseballs further. They're starting to throw baseballs harder and further. Um, but yet, if you go to a lesson, we talk about exit velocity and launch angle and, you know, pitching is spin rate. And everything. So it, it's, it's something that is literally not discussed enough and underutilized, but if taught properly can make the world a difference.
1: In your book, you talk about Roger Clemens and the chin, where he pointed the chin is where the ball would go. And, uh, can you explain that? Well, a lot of
2: times, you know, simple little drills of yesterday have been replaced with technology and and computers and videos. And so we were fortunate to spend time at Roger Clemens, what I call compound, his house is massive. Uh, And he told my youngest son, Tyler, a story of Bill Fisher who was pitching coach with the red Sox. And Bill Fisher tells the story of Nolan Ryan had a tough time controlling his fastball. It was always up high. And Nolan Ryan shared his story that Sandy Koufax said to him, all you need to do is pull your, your visor down and lower your chin. And it will set your sight line down. And so if you look at a picture of Roger Clemens, you'll see how he kind of tucks his chin. And that allowed him to kind of have more of that downward angle on his fastball. You know, and you know when you think about it, the, your, your chin controls your eyes. So as a hitter and a pitcher, I tell pitchers and hitters, control your chin and you'll control your at-bats and your, your pitches. And because it's gonna make sure that everything is staying forward and you're telling your body, we wanna go this direction. Whereas if it's up and turn, you're telling your body we wanna throw to the left or push it to the right. So your chin is kind of like the main director of your body. And that's kind of the, you know, your steering wheel for lack of a better term. Uh, And even as a hitter, if you think about your chin, Staying over a baseball during the course of your swing, you're going to be more, uh, you're going to make more contact on a more consistent basis. Uh, so it's fascinating to listen to Roger Clemens share a story from Bill Fisher that he had heard from Nolan Ryan, and ultimately from Sandy Koufax. It's like the lineage of the game. It just keeps handing you the the vital information. It's, it's giving you information that the the greats of yesterday used. And it's so simple, but yet we don't listen.
1: And he, Roger Clemens, I heard him on on television. He at uh, uh, one of the, one of the interviews he was doing, and he saying when he pitches, he points his front shoulder toward the in, toward the line, I guess, of the batter's box of a right-handed hitter. Uh, if I'm getting that correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong. And how does that help? Well.
2: Ultimately, the shoulders uh, dictate, they need to be the last part of the body that moves. So if you think of a picture as a wave in the ocean, everything occurs underneath. And then ultimately, we see the the strength of the wave by the, the size of the wave or the crest of the wave. Well, the shoulders are the crest of the wave. And what he was trying to do there is trying to tell his shoulders to stay closed until he got the foot strike. And then at that point, you know the hips would have opened up, and that the, the torque that's created from the hips then works its way through the core and up to the shoulder. So if he started with a closed front shoulder, like as he alluded to, pointing the, the, his, his left shoulder towards the right-hand batters box, it would allow him to think about staying closed longer uh, and thus allowed him to get more torque from his lower half. Uh, and really, at its simplest Uh, definition torque uh, is really what occurs in all baseball players uh, hitters and pitchers and those that learn what that means because a lot of people will move their hips and shoulders at the same time and they're not able to utilize torque and they don't gain any power Um, I call it like a gate swinging if your hips and shoulders are working together at the same time We're not going to be successful in baseball, whereas if our hips are working first and they lead the shoulders, then uh, the shoulders never initiate movement in baseball. That's the simplest thing that I'm working with parents. I tell them all the time, don't let your shoulders initiate any movement as it pertains to baseball. It's just not how the body wants to work with regard to throwing or hitting.
1: Interesting. So uh, as a kid gets older and they want to build arm speed and arm strength, what do you recommend for that?
2: Football throws, football throws, more football throws and lots of football throws. Um, You know, football throws give us feedback instantly. Um, You know, for those of us that are old enough to remember a guy like Billy Kilmer, Billy Kilmer couldn't throw a spiral to save his life. He threw a duck. Well, um, if you also throw a football, if you think about just in your mind, visualize throwing a football, the last finger on the football is going to be your index finger. And why that is important is because it's going to lead to pronation. Now, I don't say this to younger kids. And when you throw a football, you're also going to roll your elbow to the front. You're going to lead with your elbow. And all of that is is highly suggestible and, and recommended with regard to throwing a baseball, because that's the kinetic sequence, the letting the three levers throw. Don't fear throwing softballs. Don't fear throwing footballs. They're heavier than baseballs. Don't fear throwing a whiffle ball. Throw objects, just play catch. You think about, go back to, you know, all periods of time. Throwing rocks, throwing anything really—you know—you threw rocks at cans. You, you skipped rocks. You, you didn't say, "I have to count." In other words, at the end of the day, even though we have trackers on our wrists that track the number of steps, people don't worry about how many steps they take. Running is going to cause pain. Throwing is—I equate it to walking throwing and walking nobody really cares how many times we walk or how many times we throw running and pitching are the same because what's ultimately going to happen is it's going to become a deterioration because we can't continue to run if we're not marathoners and we can't continue to pitch because of the stress that it puts on our entire body not just our arm and when i talk to parents and i talk about velocity the first thing they say is arm that's not the arm is is the last thing that gets involved it's the strength of your lower half the strength of your core the strength of your shoulders the strength of your scapula the rear heads of your shoulders Um, those are the things that need to be involved and engaged in throwing so when I talk to parents about gaining arm health and arm strength play a lot of catch play a lot of catch with a lot of different objects try to play catch with this football as much as you can and focus on trying to throw a spiral you know Get an age equivalent football if you can um, and just play catch with it, you know, whether it's with your friends or your family or your brother or your sister. Just try to play catch with it as often as you can. When you're throwing a spiral, that means kinetically your body is moving in a a proper sequence and you're utilizing all of the levers uh, necessary to throw that object not only fast but
0: far. MacU Health. Your science born and tested solutions for visual performance, macular degeneration, and dry eye syndrome. New products coming soon. Embrace the science.
1: The All Eyes Visual VRP is a portable vision testing platform that includes visual fields, acuity, color vision testing, pupillometry, and extraocular motility. The visual leverages virtual reality, artificial intelligence, and augmented technologies to enable eye care providers to test for and monitor common eye diseases. Visit alleyes.com for more information. And you talk about throwing a softball that you hold the ball longer, and that helps.
2: Right. So because the ball is bigger in your hand, the diameter of the ball, and because the ball is slightly heavier, so I always tell parents, when your son picks up a whiffle ball, he does not think about injuring his arm. And the reason for that is, is because in his hand, the body does not get called upon. The body doesn't begin to stress and say, "Oh my goodness, you know, we need help." This is a heavy object. It's light, so it just says, "Okay, I'm going to leave this to the arm." We just play catch with a whiffle ball. When we start to put the baseball in the hand, okay, this is a little bit heavier. Okay, I'm going to need some more resources. Let's get the legs involved. I pick up the softball. Now my hands flares out, and so here's the thing that happens with the softball. I'll tell parents this little tiny piece of minutia is really important. <clears throat> I'll say to them. Make a fist and open it up a lot of times, but hold your other hand on your forearm. I said, I want you to, can you tell me, can you feel your muscles moving in your forearm? Oh, yeah, I can definitely feel that. I say, okay, now go like this. I said, do you feel your forearm muscles get open? And No, I don't. I said, now open your wrist, open your hand completely, and you can feel all of the movements in your forearm begin to get, they get awakened, they're, they're awoken. Well, your body starts to say, "Okay, bigger object, a little bit heavier." We all have to get involved. <clears throat> that means the body's going to stay behind the baseball a little bit more. More body mass behind the baseball means more power. More power means more velocity, more distance. So you don't even have to think. You don't have to. I don't have to say that to a child. I don't have to go through. Everything. I just say, "Let's we're going to play catch with the softball a little bit." Okay, well, now they start to throw the ball and you're going to start to notice the ball is more accurate. The ball has a little bit more power behind it because their their bodies instinctively say we have to rally the troops a little bit more than the baseball. And so all of these things just add up. And if I go to a Latin American country, you're going to see where they take nails and they pound them into softballs. That's their heavy ball. And that's what they put in their ball bag and their equipment bag. And that's what they play catch with to get loose. Um, but yet we don't really incorporate that here on a, on a big level. But, and I also say to parents at the same time, your son is playing catch with the softball for five or 10 repetitions, just have them go like this with their, their hand. Now you're basically waking up the forearm, but most importantly, you're waking up the elbow. You're waking it up. You're stretching it. You don't even realize it. And even if you just hold your hand out very straight and just turn your thumb down, bring it up, turn it down, bring it up. It's going to stretch your elbow where do most injuries occur in your elbow. It's because does anybody stretch the elbow? No, they stretch the legs. They stretch the back. You know, they pull their arm back and they do all that, but they don't do anything to the elbow. So these are just little things that, you know, you can incorporate to help with health, but at the same time, help with strength.
1: And that you talk about breaking balls and what age some a kid should throw a breaking ball. And at the beginning, we said a little bit that it, it's not, some people feel it's not as much stress as a fastball, but uh, in the book, it says around 14 uh, and, and you still feel that way wh- is a good age. I, to throw I, a I, ball.
2: I feel it's a good, here's why. And a lot of people assume I'm saying this and everybody comes back at you on social media, you know, that what I call the social media, mob, Uh, you know, when I say that, they all think it's because I'm talking about an arm injury. When in reality, how does one develop a healthy, strong arm? Okay, so let's go back to running analogy. Do I ask a a 10-year-old to run a marathon before that he can run a mile? I mean, it's just not going to happen. But yet we want to start talking about 10-year-olds throwing curveballs because they can and because it's healthy. Is that 10 year old going to throw that curveball 10 out of 10 times or seven out of 10 times for a strike? And the answer to that is no. Whereas, if I can teach a young pitcher the importance of being able to control a fastball inside and outside and locate a fastball, what I'm doing is creating arm health, but I'm creating arm strength. So let's think about what the arm is doing in a curveball, whereas, you know, you're gonna basically karate chop. Whereas with a fastball, my, my hand is going all the way through the baseball. It's staying behind and through the baseball. So what you're teaching a young baseball player is the importance of throwing with a purpose, throwing with an intended target. And the more confident that they become with the fastball, the harder they're gonna throw, the more competitive they're going to become. And now I can begin to build off of the ability to locate a fastball. It has nothing to do with hurting your arm as much as it has to do with teaching a pitcher the importance of strikes. Now, when I say to a parent the importance of strikes, they think it's about striking out a hitter. I said, no, it's the importance to keep your fielders behind you engaged, the umpire engaged. When a fielder knows that you're throwing strikes, he has to be on his toes. If you're up there bouncing curveballs at 10 years old, the center fielder begins to drift off and pick dandelions at 10. The right fielder doesn't even look at home play because he knows you're walking everybody. Why is it important to throw fastballs 9, 10, 11, 12? Because if I can throw a fastball and I can learn to throw a changeup, I learned the biggest pitching principle of all disruption of timing. Looks like a fastball, it's 10 miles an hour slower. Now I know I can throw both of those pitches for strikes. Now at 12 or 13 or 14, I can learn to throw a curveball, but I know I can throw a fastball and change up for a strike. And now I learn to tunnel and sequence my curveball off of my high fastball. You know, that is when we gain the intellectual capacity of a baseball player is 13, 14, and 15, teaching them that higher level of pitching.
1: You talk about there's like three or four different grips for a changeup. And it's important that a young kid throws a changeup. Which grips do you recommend? And uh, what is what is Tyler, which one does he use?
2: Well, Tyler learned at a very young age, I wanna say nine or 10, he could throw a changeup. And Tyler has big hands. So he learned that as you alluded to earlier, the more hands, fingers that he put on the ball, the slower the ball went. So when I teach a changeup, there's no one way to throw a changeup. It's really, how can I get the ball to arrive to home plate with less spin, thus less velocity? And so when they learn that, they throw, they'll throw it. And even unbeknownst to them, they're throwing it slower than they're throwing their fastball. And so what they're learning there is even if it's six miles an hour difference at a younger age, they, they essentially are beginning to learn, okay, he thought I was throwing a fastball and then I started to throw my change up and he didn't hit it. Or when I throw my change up, I get a pop-up or a ground ball. And that is what's really, really important. Understanding if I throw my change up, I can get soft contact. And so the importance of that as they get older is, I'm 14 years old, I'm facing a 15 year old. There's one out, a runner on first and the three hole hitters up. I throw my change up in a old count, he hits a ground ball, I get a double play, I get out of the inning. And that is when student athletes really become, when the cerebral meets the physical skills, now we're beginning to become a powerful student athlete. And that's really when a change up, the grip is an individual grip. Whatever feels comfortable to you And all we're trying to do is take the power fingers and the power fingers are the index in the middle. We wanna eliminate those two power fingers and we wanna try to incorporate the ring finger and the pinky finger. And if you can incorporate the ring and the pinky into a grip, a comfortable grip on your changeup, you're gonna naturally slow the ball down.
1: Now, does the ball with a changeup, is it it going to, it, it seems like it curves when you're watching it on television it comes it does drop a little bit what makes the reason for
2: that is gravity is it's so if i think about a fastball fastball i'm utilizing the seams and getting through the seams and the seams are cutting through the air and it almost that's what gives the ball the optical illusion of almost rising or staying on one single plane whereas with the changeup, we don't have the same spin we have a different spin or a rotation on the ball so the slower the spin the more gravity begins to push the ball down. And that's what kind of gives you that that fade down in a way. Um, you know, the really good guys that throw the change up, like Tyler can throw a change up that will cut and fade into a lefty and fade into a righty. And so, but that is a craft pitch. So pitching, I equate pitching to framing a house or finishing a house. Anybody can frame a house. It has four walls. We have a roof and we have some wind. That's framing. So I can go out and throw a fastball as hard as I can. That's just a framer. A finisher is a guy that knows how to, within a sixteenth of an inch, be able to put in cabinets and flooring and uh, all of the, the, the minutia within the house. The same thing goes with pitching. If I can be able to throw a pitch right on the edge of the black, but then I can follow that up with a change-up or a slider or a curveball on that same kind of location, making the hitter think it's a fastball, now that's a craft pitch and a, a changeup is somebody that's patient and allows for themselves to learn the grips that will work for them as they get older. You, you're not a finished product until you're 22 or 23. And in some cases, major leaguers are learning Mariano Rivera learned his cut fastball, you know, while playing catch in the outfield, I think he was his third or second year in the big leagues. So you're always learning the craft of pitching. And so grips Are individual base because different hand sizes, different finger length, different fingers, uh, you know, some are thicker fingers, some are thinner fingers. Look at Pedro Martinez. I mean, Pedro Martinez was a buck 50 or 60 soaking wet with bricks in his pocket, 5'10 if he wore spikes, but he could throw and manipulate a baseball with the best of them uh, because he learned how to properly change grips with, you know, the power fingers of the middle and and the index and then the, the non-power fingers of the pinky and the ring finger. And that's really where the craft of pitching comes into play.
1: Most of us will never meet a major league player or know a major league player. You're, you have a son who is who is a major league baseball player. How much teaching are they doing at the major league level? Or do they expect you to know at, at that level, uh, you, know, you know, they're not really going to teach you much because they don't want to mess you up?
2: But here's an interesting fact that I try to share with every family that I work with. If I take every single human that's ever played Major League Baseball across the world and I took them all to Fenway Park, there'd still be 13,000 empty seats at Fenway, meaning for a century and almost a century and a half or at least a century and a quarter, less than 25,000 men, boys, have played Major League Baseball. So being a major leaguer is, you're the elite. Even the people with the worst batting average or the worst ERA, they're still elite. The teaching at that level is more mental and more preparation-based. And it's, you know, we I think it's over-analytical at this point because when we get into over-analyzing movements, we f- freeze our bodies. The best athletes are the ones that are free and devoid of thought and they just trust in their preparation and they are react and they're very instinctual based athletes. So at the major league level, they're trying to prepare to compete. Whereas at the younger levels, we're all about statistics, we're all about validation, we're all about social media. Look what I did, look what I did, results. We're results driven whereas a big leaguer is not so concerned with day-to-day results. They're just, they want to be consistent over an extended period of time. Uh, and so when you get to be a big leaguer, it's more about your daily routine, your structures and your disciplines and all facets of your life, sleep, eating, etc so that you're allowed your body to perform at its best when it's needed. And, you know, even playing at, Division one college, division two, playing college baseball at any level is, is absolutely, uh, you know, one of those things where you have to be ready, uh, you know, mentally and physically, it, but at high school, it's such a, you know, a different course. It, it's not as long. Uh, the season is not as long, uh, travel baseball is a six or eight week kind of time period. Uh, with a bunch of showcases thrown in but being a major leaguer is more about preparation on a daily basis than anything else
1: you know a twelve year old and a kid is throwing seventy it, it looks so fast how did how did they train to hit a hundred ninety five a hundred what's it how do they do that
2: well, a lot of it has to do with uh, you know it's hard you get it off a machine um, more than anything you have to take reps off of the machine but again that's another sort spot for me because we're so worried about how hard people throw and your parents are you know that boy can't be 12 he throws too hard he's too big but well, the reality is there are different people that throw hard at different stages in life and it, it, in order to hit velocity you have to know what it feels like to hit velocity know what it looks like to hit velocity um, and that's something that that comes purely through repetition it's not an easy skill Eye-hand coordination is something that can be uh, enhanced, but not enough people pay attention to it. Um, And it it all goes back to that. It's not the arrow, it's the Indian. You have to train your eyes as much as you train the other parts of your body. And that takes discipline. It takes, you know, you have to have that implemented into your routine.
1: Because like tennis players could hit 120, 130, so obviously the eyes could, me being an eye doctor, the eyes could do that, but you know, but it looks so like, it, you know, to go from hitting 80 to go to hitting hundred. And these guys, uh, these major leaguers do it without, without it without a problem.
2: A lot of it has to do with timing mechanisms. In other words, if you see on the on-deck circle, you'll see where pitchers have rhythm and hitters have rhythm. And what hitters are trying to do is sync up with the pitcher's rhythm. So they know that at foot strike, the minute that front foot hits for a pitcher, that ball is going to come out of his hand in less than a, a tenth of a second, you know, less than a blink of an eye. And so what you're trying to do is you're trying to set up what I call a soft focus versus a hard focus. And a hard focus means to the right of a right-handed pitcher is pitching, to the right of the, the pitcher's logo on his hat, that hand is going to be coming out of that little rectangle. You've got to wait for that hand to show itself in the rectangle and then you got to basically be ready, you know, from that point forward is I got to determine, is this pitch going to be in the strike zone or if it's going to be out of the strike zone? And the eyes are what determine whether you swing or not. You prepare as a hitter to hit every pitch, but your eyes tell you yes or no. And it's the hitters that trust their eyes are more successful than the hitters just that, that assume a fastball is coming. When in reality, if I looked in the square, I would have saw the side of the wrist as opposed to a flat wrist. But, you know, I'll do drills with parents and they, you know, I'll tell them this is really important, but yet they won't do it. And they don't realize, well, when you're trying to hit a baseball going 90 miles an hour, if, if you don't teach your eyes how to find the baseball, you won't be able to see the baseball. And that is a, a little secret all unto itself. Find the ball out of the glove from a pitcher, track the ball the minute it leaves the glove to the best of your ability. And, you know, that's where your eyes are going to help you as the hitter.
1: When does the load start? Is it at the separation of as a hitter? Is it separation or when the leg goes up?
2: A lot, of, a lot of hitters will move when the pitcher moves. So, you know, you have guys now that have high leg kicks. You have guys that have no leg kick. But when a pitcher begins to initiate his movement, I as a hitter want to begin to at least put energy into my body. And so a load will occur at foot strike. At foot strike of a pitcher, I'm in my load or what I call the bow and arrow and so i am prepared the minute that that pitcher's foot hits the ground i am prepared to to hit i release my energy when my eyes tell me we're going we're in and not until so because a pitcher is releasing his energy at foot strike i want to hold my front foot strike and i want to put all that energy into that back back leg back hip back glute and then i want to release it whenever I feel like that ball is in the zone where I'm looking, if I'm looking in a a middle in or middle away, I'm going to release my energy, but I need to be prepared to hit every single pitch. Every ball is not a ball that I couldn't get a base hit on. And every strike is not a ball, is not a ball that I can get a hit on. So I need to know if I'm looking middle in and I get that ball in the inner half of the plate, I have to be aggressive because that's where I'm looking. I can't control 17 inches but I sure as heck can control eight and a half and I'm either looking middle in or middle away. And that's why you'll see a hitter freeze. Oh, two, three, two. And you see a ball right, you know, on the outside half of the plate, that's clearly a strike. Well, the hitter wasn't looking there and therefore it frozen, you know? So that's kind of how hitting works in a nutshell.
1: So when that, when the pitcher is, so when the pitcher has his foot down, they're already, they're already in there they're in a load, right? They're, they're in the
2: bow and arrow, right? They're in the hit ready, right? You're never going to see a hitter. That's gonna be uh, unready, that's gonna be not ready to hit. When as soon as he gets in the batter's box, you see a lot of movement and the pitcher's movement. But once the pitcher goes into a, a wind up or a stretch and at foot strike, you're gonna see a hitter engage in a full load.
1: So it does not necessarily with the separation. It's when the pitcher starts moving, is when they're starting. Right.
2: It. Correct. Yes.
1: I noticed, and you wrote this in your book, with young kids, they're not in the zone very often. And I have people I play softball with. They're in this zone for a very short time. And 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 how do they learn to stay in the zone as a hitter for a long time?
2: Uh, the biggest thing is you have to learn that your lead arm for a right-hand hitter, your left elbow, I, I equate it to that is your ways, that is your directional. And if you take it away from the baseball, it's going to take your your path away from the baseball. So your lead wrist is going to take you to the ball. Your top wrist is going to take you through the ball. So the biggest thing that you have to understand is your hands work as windshield wipers. And so they don't work as going around your core. They work through your core. So if you take, I always tell hit young hitters to take your, your uh, left wrist,
1: and, put, put your camera down a little bit so we could see that.
2: Uh, uh, so I'll always tell a young hitter to take your wrist, and put it on your right shoulder. And now what I want you to do is slide it across. Just slide it across. I said, now just finish your swing. Slide it across, finish your swing. Slide it across, finish your swing. Okay, now if I add my right hand to that and I just interlock my pinkies and I just say, okay, here's what your swings look like. Here and all the way out in front. It's the simplest way to teach a young hitter how to hit because we don't go around the ball We go through the ball. And so once you learn that your barrel is simply an extension of your hand, your barrel is gonna go wherever your left hand goes as a right-handed hitter. So if I take my barrel, if I take my left hand and I go like this, so does my barrel. If I go around, so does my barrel. But if I go through, so does my barrel. And so the barrel is gonna be on plane longer but again, this goes right over a lot of young hitters. So what I'll do is I'll take a ping pong paddle. Today's world, it's pickleball. And I'll just say to them, okay, I'm going to get out in front of you with some tennis balls or some wiffle balls. And all I want you to do is hold it in this hand and hit it. And so they'll go like this, boom, boom. And they have no problem. They'll hit 10 out of 10 whiffle balls. And every one is really good, strong contact. And now I'll go to a, a red, big red barrel wiffle ball bat. I'll say, okay, let's do it with the bat. Boom. And so as they get more comfortable and confident, they're not even thinking what their hand is really doing. But this is the movement for a young hitter, not this. But yet when we put a tee in front of a young hitter and we put a big bat in their hand, the first thing they want to do is they want to go around, around. Whereas if we just say to them, take the red, put it on a tee, take the big barrel bat out of their hands and put a pickleball, paddle or ping pong paddle in their hand, they're going to go like this, boom. They just go right to the ball. They don't go around the ball. So those are the types of things that will help younger hitters because they want to make contact because they know when they make contact, they get to do one thing and that's run. And when they run, they're having fun. So hitting and running, they equate both. So they want to make contact. Nobody wants to swing and miss a million times. So we don't, we shouldn't make them do that. You know, put something in their hands when they're young that will allow them to hit the ball and just move across the the body, just move across the body. Just like as if you were cutting your torso upper torso in half and just let them finish it out in front where the pitcher is. And I promise you, you know, you'll have good hitters when they, when they start to get older.
1: And when I watch Aaron judge hit, I mean, everyone's watching Aaron judge because he has 60 home runs, but he hangs his leg. And he seems almost to be hitting off one foot in a way. Uh,
2: Yeah, it's an optical illusion. So there's a guy that teaches this hitting style. um, And I don't want to go down that road. But, you know, what we see and what they're actually doing are two different things. Hitting off of your back leg is indeed what's happening in a swing. You know, it used to be where... You know, you get guys like Hank Aaron and Roberto Clemente. They hit a lot off their front foot. Willie Mays hit a lot off his front foot. Well, now the emphasis is to be using the ground and that back foot. And what, what Aaron's judge is really doing is he's taking the knob of his back down to the ball, down to, and then up through. And so when he finishes, he's got a lot of that weight into his back, back leg, his right leg. You know, you, you have to have both feet are going to be on the ground and play a significant role as a foot strike and balance. You can't have athletic movements unless you have balance and unless you have power. And, you know, your back foot or back leg plays an integral part, but it's only a portion of the swing. You know, when you look at Aaron uh, Judge when he starts his swing, he's balanced on both feet. And then that load occurs where he's taking the energy from his front side, kind of getting into his back hip a little bit. And then he's exploding off that back leg into the baseball. But I can assure you that we can break every swing down. And if we break the best of the best down, it's that knob is going into the baseball or to the baseball. I'm actually swinging the knob to the ball and utilizing the energy off of my back leg.
1: You said that, that some of the old guys would have their weight on their front foot, but now that you want to keep your weight back, why You want to be you- balanced. Why the would the they guys that
2: them? used to, the guys that used to use it was that would they would kind of get into they would take their energy from their back foot to their front foot. So you'd you'd see a lot of people what I would call like Charlie Lau theory of hitting. George Brett used that a lot. Uh, and so what what Charlie Lau was trying to say was energy going back and then coming into the pitch as it's being delivered. You're going to meet energy with energy. <clears throat> and so a lot of guys like Roberto Clemente would basically get out really extreme on that front foot, but they had released all of that energy from their backside into their front side, a stiff front side, and then all that energy released off of the barrel of the bat. But the problem is, is that those guys are the exception. They're not the rule. And so if we take a good advanced hitter, and I'm a scout or I'm a college coach, I'm going out and I'm seeing, are they on time on a fastball? At foot strike as a hitter, meaning once your lead foot hits the ground, are you balanced? Are you prepared to be athletic and explosive? And that's really what's happening. Now, a guy like Aaron Judge, if you go back and look at Aaron Judge in high school and read all the articles, he didn't have any kind of exit velocity. And he was very, very big. And he didn't have a lot of power. And it right. wasn't until he got to college where he began to learn how he transferred his weight it was going to, and how he engaged that weight into his swing was going to determine how far it was going to go and how hard it was going to come off of his back. But everybody learns it differently. But as a foundation piece, as a purely a foundation piece, hitting off of that firm front leg with all of your power coming from that back leg is really what we want to do. When when your front foot hits as a hitter, you want all that energy to be transferring. So like I tell parents, if I'm going down the hill and we're on a bicycle for two and you're behind me, and I'm going fast downhill, and I hit the brakes, boom, and we stop suddenly, what's going to happen? You're not going to go around me. You're going to go over me. So now if I think about that as a hitter, and I get all that energy coming from my back foot, and I get into my foot strike at front foot, all that energy is going to go through my body and out through the barrel. And that's where power comes from. And that's why a guy like Jose Altuve and Freddie Patek and all these guys that were smaller hitters, could hit, you know, 30 home runs in the course of a big league season. It's because they learned how to transfer their energy from their lower half through their body and out through the barrel of the bat.
1: So it has, So a lot has to do with being on time. Is that correct? You
2: have to be on time. You have to be on time. That's critical, number one. And anything to do with baseball is you have to be on time. How do Your you timing, practice
1: to do that? How do you practice to be on time?
2: A lot of that has to do with.
1: So I see so want many to hit kids me. going, they're here, they're, they're on their front foot too early and they're, they're right. not on time. And right. they no so a problem. lot of it
2: has to do with, it's a myth. So the head never moves. So my front shoulder will never move. So when you're teaching a young hitter how to hit, what you really want to do is you want to have them have something firm up against their front shoulder and have them understand that everything is through the center of their body. It's not like I'm going, this way it looks like I'm doing that but really I start here and everything is getting into my front foot but my head is staying back so what you want to teach a young hitter is front toss or side toss is don't move forward put both your feet together have your hands here and just use your upper part of your body teach them how to be on time with just the upper part of their body and so every until you get to be 100% I'm really hitting good ball strike I'm getting good line drive now I want to spread my feet out a little bit, no stride, do the same thing. And then I want to start to integrate my, my, my stance and my movement and try to understand, okay, this is what I'm doing. I'm getting some energy built up and I'm releasing it. You just want to be, it's a dance move with the pitcher. When the pitcher moves, I want to try to sequence my movements with his movements. Some pitchers move slow and methodical. Other pitchers move fast and aggressive. So I just want to use my timing to either speed up or slow down based on what the pitcher is doing.
1: And you talked about a bounce drill in the book.
2: Yeah, the greatest drill that you can do with regard to like getting ready for off-speed pitches is a hitter has, when you do use tennis balls or baseballs, if you have a turf, uh, you can bounce a ball off the ground and then bounce it into the hitter's hitting area. And that forces a hitter to get into their stride and follow the ball down and then up. And when it reaches that apex of where you want to hit it, now I'm going to release everything. And so you're teaching patience, To track a ball. So, whether it's an off speed pitch, like a changeup or a breaking ball, I can see that it's been released. I track it and then I can attack it. So, the bouncing drill, you want to mix that in when you're doing front toss or side toss, just to keep a a young hitter from being leaking energy forward.
1: Coach, as we finish up, you've been so generous with Chime. Any other drills for hit it, hitters that you would recommend that we didn't that we didn't discuss for the peep for the parents that are watching out there as their kid their kids are moving through and trying to become better hitters you got some kids that are powerful right away and other kids they can't hit the ball or the infield no matter what they do
2: the number one drill that you should be doing is get a broomstick cut it to 30 inches 30 excuse me 32 inches or 33 inches hit acorns, hit rocks, hit whiffle balls, hit small golf, plastic golf balls, give your, your margin of error, reduce it. But I can take a thousand reps with a broomstick and each one of those thousand reps will be the same as the first one. Whereas if we're trying to hit with a conventional baseball bat, after a certain number of swings, we're going to fatigue our hands our arms and our swings are going to start to get different hit swing, more hit less, meaning, Get your acorns, get your rock, get your whiffle balls, get your tennis balls. Just have a lot of them in the backyard. And I tell parents, and I have videos that I send to parents all over the country, have your sons begin to be able to toss the ball up to themselves and swing and hit it. And they can go chase, you know, they can have two walls and they can just have two whiffle balls and it's not gonna go but 10 feet. And then you just go get it and do it again and do it again and do it again. That is the number one way. That's what people in Latin American countries are doing. That's what we should be doing more of. That's what I did when I was a kid. Swing more, hit less. It's a big, big deal. That will make you a really good hitter. You don't need to be in a lesson. You don't need to be inside of the facility. You can do it in your backyard.
1: And how about you can do it in your gym? How about
2: pitching? I I always try to tell parents, play catch with the football, play lots of catch, play catch with a purpose, meaning have a target and reward them for hitting the target. Don't just play chase don't play fetch if your son throws a ball over your head make him go get it it will make him less inclined to miss you he'll start to want to be more accurate with his throws and the more arm strength you can build up the better pitcher and the other thing is throwing balls off of a wall is the best drill you can do for young pitchers and i get a lot of parents that is shake a their heads
1: ball or a baseball with a tennis
2: ball or a baseball the reason is is when i feel the ground ball and i bring it to my chest I'm gonna shorten my arm action. I'm athletic and I'm consistent, and I'm building muscle memory. I, I tell parents all the time: let your son throw balls off of a wall; they'll become better fielders, which they have to be anyway if they're a pitcher. But they're gonna develop natural arm path by the way they receive the ball and throw the ball. Don't practice to be a pitcher; practice to be a thrower at the younger ages.
1: And to finish up, give me a couple of tricks for for fielding uh, kids that might be afraid of the ball or Uh, to feel the ground ball or or a fly ball?
2: Okay, so typically that happens when they're very, very young. So when they're young, you want to either do with balloons. I'm talking about very young, ages three to five. Have them catch small balloons. Don't even tell them anything about it. Just throw it up in the air. Instinctively, they go up and catch it with both hands. You very, very rarely will see a young child try to catch a balloon with one hand. So they begin to learn how they incorporate both hands. The other thing is the incredible. I can't stress this enough. Get in a couple, a bucket of balls, It might cost $10. And you can roll those. You can throw it at them. They don't develop any fear of the ball. The number one thing is, is we develop fear from when we're younger. We have a bad experience. A ball bounces and hits us. If you take that away at three, five, and six years old and just play a lot of catch with the Ball, you're going to develop no fear, and they'll develop good movement pat- patterns and, 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 and throwing and, and fielding, etc., when they get older and now we're using the ball, I always tell parents, kids will not fear a ball that they throw to themselves. They're going to be in fear of, a, of, a, of an adult throwing a ball because they know that the adult has more power than they do. So throwing the ball off of the wall, throwing the ball off of a pitch back where they get to field it, throwing the ball off of a chimney, throwing the ball off of a school wall, anything where they control the tempo and the speed, they would have no fear. The more that you allow them to do that, the more consistent and they're going to fear gets eliminated and the smoother their movement patterns will become. And the other thing is always let your children play with older kids. Now, I'm not talking about a 16 year old with a nine year old, but a 12 to 10 year old. Why? They emulate what they see when they see a 12 year old or fielding a ball. They immediately say, hey, I want to be like them. I'm going to field it like they feel they don't feel the stress, they don't feel the fear because they wanna fit in with their peers. So the more reps that you can have them take with older children within the neighborhood or, or the school, the more they're gonna pick those things up on themselves. Less spotlight, more you know, just general repetition. Spotlight is lessons, games, tournaments, things like that. You don't need that. You need to do it in, a, in an environment where they're having fun and they're able to control the rep, the energy and the power That's the biggest way that they'll learn.
1: Kids that are slow runners, can they get faster?
2: Uh, They can. You know, the number one thing is I'll tell parents, you think running uphill is making them faster. Running downhill helps them run faster. And I'll always say to parents, I'll say, to you, you, is your son fast? He's fast. I said, if a pit bull was chasing your son, would he be faster or the same speed? Well, obviously he'd run faster. Okay, well, we have to find your son or daughter's pit bull. We have to get them to understand that foot speed and agility can come from a number of different ways, whether it's from playing hopscotch, whether it's playing soccer, whether it's any, you know, way that you get to stop and start is going to develop foot speed. And so running downhill consistently is going to teach children how to run faster because their legs have to move faster or else they fall down. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, going down a massive hill, A a slight decline works just fine. But if you really want to pick up speed, foot speed, you know, you want to do the agility work and you want to run downhill.
1: I want to thank coach Walter Beatty for joining me today. Uh, you're such a wealth of information and, you know, please look at his book. Uh, people want to find out more about you. How could they do that?
2: Sure. On Twitter, it's baseball life for 11. And then you can go to uh, baseballprocess.com And then all the books are on Amazon under my name, Walter Beatty.
1: And if they want to follow Tyler.
2: Tyler Beatty at uh, he's just Tyler Beatty on Twitter I believe he's Tyler Beatty on Instagram and also Facebook
1: well Walter coach thank you so much for joining me today you, you were very generous with your time and I know the parents out there are really going to appreciate the help that you've given them Thank you so thank much.
2: you Terry thank you very much I appreciate your time.
0: MacU Health with micromycel the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and micromycel technology the all
1: eyes visual vrp is a portable vision testing platform that includes visual fields acuity color vision testing pupillometry and extraocular motility the visual leverages virtual reality artificial intelligence and augmented technologies to enable eye care providers to test for and monitor common eye diseases. Visit alleyes.com for more information. Fitting multifocal contact lenses presents a big opportunity to meet patient needs while growing your practice. Alcon is your partner, not only with our innovative portfolio, but through e-learning. Learn to enhance your multifocal strategy today with the Alcon Experience Academy.
0: OIE Broadcasting
1: is the emerging leader in social media. We use scientific entertainment to drive
0: more patients into your office. Visit oiebroadcasting.com and sign up today.
2: Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes
1: me clean his boat. It's natural y es un buen producto.
0: Every time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You products. I bring extra and my roommates certainly don't mind.
1: It's a good thing I had Safe For You to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with Safe For You.
0: And most importantly, the reason why I buy Safe For You is because it's safe for me and you.